This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 168, Operation Crusader, Part 3. Battle is joined. The battle, or rather the series of battles that was Operation Crusader, did not unfold as General Cunningham, commander of 8th British Army, had planned for. Battles rarely do. Yet Crusader was an exception even to this rule. The reasons why are now at least better understood. Most of the area between the German frontier wire to the south and southeast of Fort Capuzzo, all the way back to Tobruk and to its south, was more or less manageable by both sides' tanks and trucks. Only a few places required the men to get out and push, and most of those were well known. Which meant that the battlefield on which Crusader played out, some 100 miles or 160 kilometers east to west, and some 60 miles, or 96 kilometers, north to south, was relatively an open area. In other words, it was a sea of sand that could be crossed wherever. This allowed for opportunities for whomever was attacking at the moment, and a nightmare for those trying to defend. The adversary could come out of anywhere, from any direction. But that was only the beginning of why the British attack plan fell apart so quickly. In November, the days could still be energy-sappingly hot, and the nights freezing cold. Any dust storms that arose, seemingly out of nowhere, could block visibility within seconds. Then again, heavy rains could fall just as fast, and what had been passable terrain was now something just short of quicksand. As the sand covered everything, it would be hard to tell the uniform of anyone a short distance away. 
not to mention some blob out on the horizon. Identification was impossible most times. As for the radios, they were always used far beyond their intended range, and binoculars were of little help, as each side was using tanks and trucks captured from the other. As for the men in the air, spotting a column was one thing. You then had to get in close enough to identify them, which put you within range of their anti-air weaponry. But even when an enemy was spotted, reporting their current location was never easy or accurate. And on more than one occasion, a plane or patrol simply did not return, their fate almost never known. Then there were the electric storms, though mostly glossed over here thus far, could make radio communications impossible for hours. Adding to the difficulty of waging war in the desert was how each side altered its tactics as for being in the desert. The Germans normally stopped where they were at dusk, expecting or hoping their supply vehicles to find them, whereas the British tended to travel to a certain distance, but then back up a mile or two for rest and hopefully safety. Again, their supply trucks would have to find them wherever they were camping that night, not to where they had been earlier that day. What this all came down to, or demanded, was who, from each side, not only developed a feel for battle while in the desert, but also a desert sense. The Italians had tried in 1940 to master the environment, and were made miserable for it. The British, with their pre-war exploration societies, had learned to live within the limits of what the desert allowed. The Germans were somewhere in between. Getting back to the battle, Crusader would last an unexpected three weeks. Each command would very quickly lose control, getting out-of-date or completely wrong information, from which they would attempt to conduct their forces to victory. In reality, it came down to many units fighting whomever was in front of them as they tried to keep to their assignments, which changed, as Rommel did not react as he was expected to at first. But, first things first, Cunningham sought after Rommel's armor to destroy it. However, that would depend on who moved out first. Rommel's start date to begin finishing off to Brook was November 21st. Cunningham's to finish off Rommel was November 11th. Yet that date was not met, because the CNC was waiting on the late-arriving 22nd Armor Brigade, this pushed his D-Day back to the 15th. Then, Auchinleck was told the South Africans were not finished with their training, a vital practice, as they would soon be securing the left flank of Cunningham's main armored thrust of the 7th Division. Auchinleck was flabbergasted, but the South African commander, Brink, demanded more time to practice a night march. So, Auchinleck moved the start date again, to November 18th. Surprisingly, Churchill, when he was told of the delay, took it in stride. The fact that he was finally getting an attack probably soothed him. By the first part of the day of November 17th, the British 8th Army had reached its assembly areas. Somehow, the Axis forces before them did not pick up on this. 
This can mostly be explained by the vastly improved radio procedures since Battleaxe. Timetables had been agreed to before they moved out to their last jumping-off points, so signals were not needed. Still, fake radio signals were sent out, indicating where the Commonwealth forces had been days before. And yet, the German intercept teams did notice a variation in the signals they overheard. But when they passed on their findings to Panzer Group headquarters, and they passed it on to Rommel, he brushed them aside. Having just come back from Rome, he was still focused on Tobruk, and had the added diversion of ordering his units to move out as he was preparing his attack on the port city. To the Axis credit, the British did not pick up on their movements either. By the time the Germans were in place, focusing on their rear, the only units that remained in front of Norrie's 30 Corps, the main strike force, out of Rommel's two panzer divisions, were his 3rd and 33rd reconnaissance units. Crusaders' main target, the panzers, were ordered away, for Rommel's reasons that had nothing to do with an expected British attack. Further blinding both sides to the other were several days of low clouds before Cunningham's tanks moved out. In truth, both sides were hit by storms the night of November 17th, but the Germans' main airfield at City Roseg near Tobruk was more affected than the RAF's. Their location, further east, helped them to miss the brunt of the rain clouds. The morning of November 18th finally came. Norrie's 30th Armor Corps moved out. Crossing the frontier wire near Fort Madalena, about 35 miles or 56 kilometers south of City Omar, the British medium tanks, along with their American Honey light tanks, swung out in an arc. The three brigades maintained their aero formation, its tip pointed at Gabra Sali, and yet when the lead tanks reached their objective that evening, the Germans were nowhere to be seen. Cunningham, who was with Norrie, was surprised. But not Norrie. He had predicted this. They were tanks. They were meant to be on the move. The two German reconnaissance units had seen the lead British tanks coming their way, realized they were not theirs, and so retreated, while reporting the British advance, counting some 200 tanks. And yet... The Germans, not sure of British intent, sent a company of tanks, along with supporting anti-tank guns, to the 3rd and 33rd Reconnaissance Units, just in case the British came that far, to their new position to the north. Norrie recommended to his commanding officer that if the first phase of Crusader was to elicit a response from the Germans that would cause them to focus their armor, well, the 30th Division needed to keep moving ever closer to Tobruk. That would bring the panzers out. And Cunningham agreed. The next day, the 19th, the 30th Division would head to City Razig, which is just a bit more than halfway between where they were now and Tobruk. As for Rommel, when more details came to him, he still refused to believe it was anything serious. Surely the British were just trying to do to him what he had attempted to do to them during his midsummer night's dream. They were just testing him and looking for prisoners and supplies. The company of tanks sent would handle them. 
Rommel got back to his troops, readying to attack Tobruk. Early the next day, November 19th, Gott's 7th Armored Division moved out, heading north by northwest. Meanwhile, the 22nd Armored, on the left of the 7th Armored, would travel along the Trig El Abd route, which ran west by northwest, and they were the first to see action. Coming upon some of the tanks from the Ariete Division, the British charge spooked the Italians, who prudently retreated back to a prepared position for support. The 22nd Armored gave chase, but could not catch the Italians until they stopped at Bir el Gubi, along the Trig el Abd, some 25 miles or 40 kilometers due south of Tobruk. But here is where Operation Crusader started to break down. The 22nd Armored was not an experienced unit and did not heed the advice from the commander of the 11th Hussars, who called for caution, but more importantly, to only approach with artillery support once it arrived. But the young yeomanry's blood was up, having chased the Italians for some miles. The game was afoot, but this was no game. The British tanks went in, using simple tactics, but no infantry support, because they didn't have any, but no gun support either, because they wouldn't wait. As the Italians were in fixed positions, and their anti-tank guns were not hampered by British artillery, they simply fixed their sights on the excited three yeomanry units coming at them, and fired, as did their tanks, now behind the defensive perimeter. During the melee, the British units fell back on their training by dashing ahead, stopping to fire, and then moved out again. But the Italians knew of this most basic of tactics and waited for their armor to stop. Then they fired. In short order, 25 A-15 cruiser tanks of the 22nd were taken out. To be sure, the élan of the British did destroy 34 Italian tanks, and damaged 15 more. But losing so many tanks in one go was not a part of Cunningham's plans. The math didn't add up. On a more sad note, those who had wanted infantry support for the 7th Armored Division were proved correct. The Italians had started to surrender in small groups when the fighting began, but there were no British infantry to capture them. One does not and cannot surrender to a tank swirling past. There needs to be men with guns on the ground to keep the now prisoners away from their guns and their radios. That did not happen. Many of the confused Italians simply went back to their guns and started firing again. Thus, the British lost the number of tanks they did. As for a crusader's main thrust that day from the 7th Armor Brigade, it had more success. During the day of the 19th, its north-by-northwest route had it approaching Tobruk directly, just 10 miles or 16 kilometers southeast of the trapped Commonwealth position. The 7th managed to surprise and take the city Rizeg airfield, destroying 19 Axis planes as they came upon the airstrip. This put the 7th armored behind the Pavia and Africa division to the east who were now obviously concerned. Now fully alert, two infantry battalions of the Africa Division were sent out, 
around the airfield and the enemy tanks to Eb Duba to place themselves in between the enemy's advanced position and to Brook. By the time the 7th Armored secured their new position and discovered the German infantry in front of them, the sun was setting. They had gone as far as they could this day. Yet the British tanks did not back up and settle down, as per their normal routine. They spent the night on and around the airfield. Yet the day's main action was that of Gatehouse's 4th Armored Brigade's group, who had the job of protecting the 7th's right flank and keeping a connection between the Crusaders' tank attack on the airfield and the infantry division facing the Italian front line near the frontier. When Gatehouse's armor spotted the German reconnaissance units, some of them were sent north to pursue. In fact, they ended up chasing the German light units almost to Bardia along the coast. The chase and the clashes were exciting for the young men, but Cunningham's armor was quickly becoming unmasked. The rest of Gatehouse's armor stayed at Gabre Sali, where supposedly the Germans had their armor in force. Yet that was not the case. However, with all this British presence behind the frontier wire, General Cruel of the Africa Corps now had enough evidence to force Rommel's hand who had ignored his request the day before, to send von Ravenstein's 5th Light Division to Gap Sali. Now the 5th Panzer Division moved out. That afternoon, Gatehouse was hit by the 5th Panzer Regiment of the 21st Panzer Division. The fighting as the sun went down was intense, and claims on both sides were confused and thus exaggerated. But by the end of the day, the Germans held the area. Gatehouse moved back a few miles. Ironically, this was where the main battle was to have taken place, to wipe out the German armor. But now, with the 22nd Armor Brigade having moved further west, and the 7th Armored now further to the northwest, the British did not have enough massed armor to destroy the 5th Panzer Regiment, nor hold Gab Sali. What's more, Gatehouse had lost 23 American Honey Light Tanks that day. Again, the math wasn't adding up for Crusader. That night of the 19th, Cunningham met with Norrie, who told him to hold the city Razig airfield with Gott's 7th Armored. Gatehouse was sent word to hold at Gabrisali. Because of the confusion and intermittent radio contact, Nori nor Cunningham realized Gatehouse wasn't at Gab Sali. Cunningham then flew back to 8th Army Headquarters at Fort Madalena. There he went over the reports from the RAF. It was reported, correctly so, of intense German movement westward towards Tobruk. To Cunningham, though the day had not gone according to plan, it looked like a general withdrawal by the enemy. Perhaps the taking of the airfield had spooked Rommel, and the 5th Panzer's regiment's attack was nothing more than an attempt at protecting Rommel's assumed withdrawal. It was, in fact, Rommel still hoping to overrun Tobruk, thinking British movements were nothing more than a reinforced reconnaissance. His reports that night were just as spotty as Cunningham's as was his interpretation. 
Back at 8th Army Headquarters, confidence, though shaken that day of the 19th, had been restored. The Germans seemed to be pulling out. To be sure, their armor was still intact. But if they left Cyrenaica, then a showdown during their retreat was still possible. Cunningham wondered out loud if now wasn't the time for the men of Tobruk to attempt a breakout. They could be covered by God's seventh, just ten miles away. The armor then regrouped and then sent after the fleeing panzers. After the sun set on the 19th, General Cruel would be the one to determine Cruiser's destiny, as he had used the reports of that day to convince Rommel to allow him to use the Africa Corps to hit the enemy's dispersed armor. And yet Cruel started off his counteroffensive with a mistake. The British armored units at Sidi Aziz near Bardia were to be destroyed by the 15th Panzer Division coming out of the west. Yet, as we have seen, these were nothing more than gatehouses, armored cars, and American honeys. The Italians had exaggerated their findings to the north. Meanwhile, the 21st Panzer Division was told to disengage from the supposedly smaller enemy force of gatehouses at Grab Sali and head east. Cruel's idea was for the 15th Panzer to hit the imagined larger force up north and for the 21st to cut off their retreat, as they would be expected to head south to round Sidi Omar, itself at the southern end of the main axis front line. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, and like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub, with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The dawn of November 20th saw the British start to concentrate what tanks they could at Sidi Razig, just 10 miles southeast of Tobruk. Meanwhile, Lieutenant General Ronald Scobie, the commanding officer at Tobruk, was ordered to make ready for a breakout. As for the Germans, the 21st Panzer moved forward with its orders to leave off of Gatehouse's 4th Armor Brigade at Grab Salih and head east by northeast to cut off the large force of British tanks that didn't exist. Yet now Cruel's two thrusts came up empty-handed. The 21st Panzer, rushing to the northeast, realized it did not have enough fuel to reach the area south of Sidi Aziz, and was forced to seek out the closest fueling point back at Gabr Salih. That's one. 
Next, the 15th Panzer, moving east, found no large armored force at City Aziz. This was reported to Cruel, who was getting nervous, as Rommel had barely given approval for the attacks. Yet Cruel dutifully reported the updated situation to Rommel, then told him he would now send the 15th south to Gabr Sali and take out the seemingly isolated enemy armor unit there. This would give the 21st Panzer time to refuel, then join in the fight if needed. Cruel had guessed correctly that if the British had a force at Gab Sali, then their larger force had to be closer to Tobruk. This not only put them out of reach of Cruel, but made them Rommel's problem, and if he refused to believe that they were there, that was his problem as well. Cruel had found an enemy unit refusing to leave an area, and he would use that anchor to hit them with what he was given. And Rommel's unrommelness continued. When Cruel told his superior of his intentions, Rommel advised caution. Clearly the reports coming in were at best only seeing a part of the picture, but Cruel had seen enough, and Rommel let him have his way. To make this unusual day the 20th more so, the German radio signals that day were clear. The British picked them up, translated them, and sent them to Cunningham, Gatehouse, and Gort. Clearly, Gabr Sali and Gatehouse were the target of the day. So Cunningham ordered Gort, just outside of Tobruk, to release some of the units coming to him to help Gatehouse. Gort had the 22nd Armor Brigade, which was to the west and north of Gatehouse, to turn and head for his position, not to Tobruk. As Cunningham had written in his marching orders, Tobruk's relief was to be incidental. The real target was Rommel's panzers. And indeed, Cunningham was going to get his tank battle at Gabr Sali. Of course, the way it was shaping up, it would pit two British armor brigades with little or no artillery or infantry support against two German armored divisions with full artillery and infantry support. The theory of Elan was about to be tested. Such were the distances that Cruel's 15th Panzer Division engaged Gatehouse before the 22nd Guards could reach him. The fighting was fierce, and soon dust covered the battlefield. The RAF was called in, but by the time they arrived, the dust would not allow them to determine who was who. The planes left, frustrated, without dropping any bombs. The Panzer's support groups made the difference. By the time darkness came, the 22nd Guards were still en route, and Gatehouse had lost 26 more honeys. The Panzers had kept his attention, while the German gunners, unconcerned with enemy artillery fire, zeroed in. Per standard procedures, Gatehouse left the battlefield to the south for a few miles to rest in relative peace. During the fighting, the 21st Panzer Division had refueled and would spend that night moving towards the 15th, just in case the British came back the next day. Meanwhile, the men of the 15th Panzer, the victors, spent that night recovering their damaged tanks, their wounded comrades, and destroying what British vehicles they could not salvage. 
closer to Tobruk, that same day of November 20th, the 7th's support group made its way to Gott's position and the Axis airfield, and those guns and infantry were sorely needed. While Gott waited to see how things played out to his southeast at Gabr Salih, the Germans had managed to put the Africa Infantry Division, with its artillery, on two ridges, one to the north of the airfield, on the Sidi Razig Ridge, and the other on the ridge Trip Point 175 to the south. The Africa Infantry Division spent the day shelling Gott's position, yet Gott was unduly worried. He would hold up here for the day, having already called Brink's 5th South African Brigade to him from the south. The next day, the 21st, he would use what infantry and guns he had to clear the ridge to the north, while the 5th South African cleared the ridge to the south. Then they would all assemble and make for Tobruk. At the same time, the men of Tobruk, under Scobie, would break out, and together they would crush whatever Axis forces were in between them. Then, after the 22nd and the 4th Guards Brigades at Gab Sali destroyed whatever panzers were there, Cunningham would have free reign to retake Cyrenaica. Crusader, though faltering at first, would succeed. But that night of November 20th, as the British planned on how they would harass the soon-to-be-retreating enemy, Rommel returned to himself. A radio broadcast from Cairo that day that announced a major British offensive determined to push the enemy out of North Africa pulled Rommel's eyes from his maps of Tobruk. After all, the trapped men weren't going anywhere. No, it was best to deal with those determined to break them out first, then refocus on the irritating port city. Rommel radioed Cruo. He was told to forget about finishing off the British armor at Gabr Salih. Instead, he was to make haste for the Sidi Razig airstrip, his airstrip, and destroy those British tanks. As Cruel had already surmised, because it was the larger force. And just like that, Crusaders' objectives disappeared into the desert wind. Rommel had redirected the direction of the battle to suit his needs. There would be no panzers at Gab Salih when the sun arose. But knowing what we know now, Cunningham still had his chance. Whether the panzer divisions were destroyed just outside of Tobruk or somewhere else mattered little. What's more, Cunningham's tanks would have the support of Scobie's men as they rushed from the port city. British Elan was about to pit itself against German professionalism. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 169, Stalin and the Great War. Last time, the Great War was about to engulf Europe, and the one Russian who most accurately foretold of the abyss to come was not Stalin or Lenin, not Trotsky, or Viktor Chernov, the leader of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, Russia's largest party on the left. No, it was Pyotr Dernovo, the former policeman who had made the lives of many revolutionaries a living hell. After Nicholas II removed him from the Interior Ministry in 1906, 
Dernovo served as the leader of the far-right group in Russia's upper house, the State Council. In early 1914, he wrote to the Tsar and the Duma that their current policy of beating their chest alongside Britain and France would not hold the Kaiser to a peace. And he was right. Germany was the power on the continent, and Wilhelm had waited a long time to use it. What's more, somehow, Russia's informal entente with Britain had become an alliance, and that country was on a collision course with Germany. Russia did not need to have a stake in such a fight. There was no tension between Russia and Germany. The contest was between these two naval powers. Let them settle things. Dernovo went on in his warning to his superior, If war comes and Russia is involved, it will go very badly for St. Petersburg, and the government would be blamed. Social revolution would surely come, no matter how many people were jailed or shot. The people would have had enough. The gentry's land would be taken over by the people, by their sheer numbers. Quote, Russia will be flung into hopeless anarchy, the issue of which cannot be foreseen. Unquote. In other words, an abyss. And it made sense that Dernovo was the one to make so accurate a prediction. He was not only thinking like a cop, treating the countries like people, but he was also in Russia. Lenin, except for two years, lived outside of Russia from 1900 to 1917. Trotsky had been sent away from 1907 to 1917. Viktor Chernov, the leader of the Socialist Revolutionary Party, was on the move in and out of Russia from 1899 to 1917. As for Stalin himself, in 1914, he was then 36, and in the second year of a four-year internment in northeastern Siberia. And due to his record of successful escapes, his latest abode was far away from any rail line. It would seem that this revolutionary would finally do his full time. And knowing Stalin as we do now, his greatest enemy would be boredom. In July of 1915, while Lenin was still in exile, he wrote to Zinoviev, Do you remember Koba's name? He was referring to Koba's real last name, Jugashvili. But Zinoviev did not. Lenin then wrote to others that fall of 1915, asking them to find out Koba's last name. His younger protege could not be lost during the conflagration that saw the end of so many millions of lives. Yet during the Great European War, Stalin battled on through his exile by writing letters and asking friends through those letters to send him books. Particularly, he sought out books about Russia's many problems. It was his idea to write another essay to follow up on his Marxism and the National Question. In fact, a long letter was sent out by him early in his exile on cultural autonomy, but it never made it to anyone and was presumably lost. Undaunted, Stalin continued to write. The gist of his next letter was trying to bridge the gap of imperial Russia, the war, and how a country could thrive while being a large multinational state. As for his day-to-day -day activities, 
he soon ran into Yankel Yakov Zverdlov, a future rival, but for now, a fellow prisoner, thanks to the same betrayer, Malinowski. Yet, too soon, they saw too much of each other, as Zverdlov would write to his wife, With me is the Georgian Jugashvili, an old acquaintance. He's a decent fellow, but too much of an egotist in everyday life. We know each other too well. That last part was written in May 1914. Zverdlov soon moved out of their shared cabin, and the two men saw little of each other. Now that Stalin had the place to himself, he returned to his other pastime, seducing naive young ladies also in exile. One young lady told him of someone who had recently died, so Stalin dashed to his hut, as he had a library. Stalin took all the books. This was against the unwritten rules of the prison camp. The Georgian book thief was soon hated by most. The young lady, a girl really, just 13 years old, one Lydia Peroprygina, soon became pregnant. She was only one of several. But soon the local constable came and made Stalin promise to marry her, which he did. He promised, but the marriage never happened. On a side note, after Stalin left this place, he made arrangements for a dog he had befriended, Tishka, to be sent to him. However, none of the women, nor their offspring, went with the dog. The winters at Turohanskoy lasted eight months of the year, making life that much harder. Still, the people survived as best they could. Stalin wrote of this time, If you live among wolves, you must behave like a wolf. Late in 1916, Stalin, though writing many letters to his comrades, like Lenin, Zinoviev, and the Aluvniev sisters, himself received one. From the state. It was a draft notice. But after Stalin was examined, he was rejected due to his deformed arm and injured leg. If St. Petersburg was calling on the likes of Stalin, the war had to be going badly for them. Yet Russia did well at first, considering. In 1914, Russia had some 178 million people, of which 18 million were eligible for the draft, and 15 million of them would be called up. But it was not enough. Still, lacking most materials needed for war, Russia managed to pierce Germany's eastern flank early on. It more than handled the forces of Austria-Hungary, and fought more successfully against the Ottomans than did the British. Yet, Germany would recover and begin to fight the Russian bear with more tactics than tenacity. And that paid off. Russian forces had to retreat at Tenenberg, southeast of Danzig, and soon after, St. Petersburg itself was threatened. During all this, the government of Nicholas II creaked on. The Duma was outmaneuvered by him most times, but even when those on the right wanted to form a group to support the Tsar, he would not allow it. No one must have any control over his all-highest, and wouldn't a leader have to respond to the entreaties of those that supported him? No, Nicholas strove on alone, even refusing to have a personal secretary. Between 1914 and 1917, Russia suffered through four prime ministers, 
because of the Tsar's insecurity, and none of them were worthy of the office. As for the military effort, Nicholas, in September of 1915, took over command from his first cousin, Grand Duke Nicholas. Russia's future was now completely in his hands. Yet, despite Nicholas taking over, there were some competent people serving under him. The Tsar couldn't do everything, make every decision. Thus, by 1916, the Russian war economy was starting to improve. No longer did St. Petersburg, Russianized to Petrograd, have to buy weapons from outside. It was able to produce enough guns and shells on its own, for the most part. And yet, millions of Russian soldiers were still dying, due to bad leadership. Word of this reached the homeland. The hungry and terrified peasants had had enough. Numerous riots broke out that fall of 1916. When this internal chaos was added to that within the government, in no small part due to the Tsarina Special Council, Rasputin, true cracks began to show. Many of the ministers chose to just go through the motions. Yet this time of guiding state policy through Nicholas's wife was about to end. In December of 1916, Rasputin's body was found, mutilated, floating in Petrograd's river. But the tide of instability, or insanity, did not stop. It could not be stopped. The Tsar was in charge of the war, but knew little of tactics or strategy. Each piece of legislation was to be signed by him, yet he would not if he did not agree with it. It didn't matter if it was passed by the Duma. As 1917 opened up, rumors were circulating about a coup or putched. The question was, who would strike first, the right or the left? By now, the Okranka was warning their political master that revolution was in the air. They could only arrest so many people. Perhaps it was time to start dealing with the country's problems more effectively. But no one tells a czar what to do, certainly not the people under him, for God had chosen Nicholas to lead them. In January and February of 1917, the people started marching in the streets, chanting, Down with the czar! Down with the war! But by March, a third sentence was added asking where was Russia's bread. Before the war, Russia fed itself, along with Germany and the United Kingdom. Where was that bread now? The answer was twofold. First, much of it was lost or stolen en route. As much as the Russian government focused on the war effort, little thought was given to the harvest and delivery of their staple crop. The other reason was the drop in the price of bread. Hence, those growing it did not sell it to the government, as they had before. If hard times came, and they seemed to have moved into Russia permanently, a family could eat the bread. They could not consume the few kopecks their harvest now earned. When this was combined with the many people moving from the fields to the cities of Russia, starvation and revolution was suddenly a very real possibility. On February 19, 1917, the government announced there would be rationing. The bread simply wasn't coming to Petrograd from the south as it had before. The women of the capital 
had had enough. They took to the streets en masse four days later. But that alone could not bring about revolution. What was needed was for the elites to give up on the Tsar. And that's what they did soon after. After the women marched, the army was told they had ten days' worth of bread. No more. The army leaders quickly met with the Duma leader and key legislators and said, The feeling in the army is such that all will greet with joy the news of a coup d'etat. It has to come. We will support you. Clearly, chaos was coming to Petrograd. Nicholas, after removing himself and re-reading Caesar's commentaries, gave the interior minister, Alexander Protopopov, the fifth in 13 months, practically dictatorial powers, and was told to clean up the mess. The mess was the collapse of the Romanov dynasty. On February 24th, the people of the capital marched again. This time, there were men in the crowd, as they had walked off their jobs. The next day, February 25th, Nicholas wrote to his remaining governmental workers and told them to clear the streets. That night, Major General Sergei Kabalov, head of the Petrograd Military District, met with Protopopov and Major General Alec Balk, the Petrograd City Commandant. They were not confident of any successful outcome, but were now trying to protect themselves. They would attack on the morrow. When the sun rose on February 26, the Okranka arrested some 100 known revolutionaries. The imperial troops went out to the street and fired into the first crowd they saw. Fifty people were killed, another 100 wounded. But it took the air out of the rebels. That night, the soldiers who had done the killing, the Volhynian Guards Battalion, examined their actions. The other battalion, the Pavlovsky, told them that what they had done was wrong. The next day, February 27th, when the people were back in the streets, the Holvinian, to a man, joined the people. But that was just the beginning. Then the former soldiers went to other units to encourage them to join the cause. From there, chaos ensued. The Okranka headquarters was burned down, and criminals were freed. Leftists started forming committees or councils. Those trying to remain loyal to the Tsar sought to form a committee themselves to bring the people around, but then offered their resignation to the Tsar, who refused. He would come to the capital himself and set his ship of state to rights, but he only made it to the outskirts. There he was told of the true situation, and bit by bit allowed a government answerable to the Duma, and not himself, to be formed. Yet his fall from grace was not complete. One by one, word came from the front commanders that they supported the abdication of the Tsar. The desertions from the army continued, as did the protests in the streets, which spread from Petrograd to Moscow and other important cities. As for faraway Georgia, Stalin's home. Word of the chaos reached it by telegraph. The message read, All is in the hands of the people. This led a local group to assume power, and they started arresting Tsarist officials. As for the man himself, out in Siberia, he and those around him 
were suddenly free. For who would keep the prisoners imprisoned, and why? They were probably not going to be paid any longer. Stalin had been a hunted man for 17 years, but now the body that sought to incarcerate him no longer existed. He was a free man. His first move was to make his way to a rail line and head for Petrograd. When he arrived there on March 12, 1917, he only had the clothes on his back and a typewriter. 